We'll be continuing our series in Romans this morning. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to, our passage is going to be verses 3 through 8, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. So Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. If you remember verses 1 and 2 that we looked at last week were just an introduction to the broader section that's going to go all the way through through 1530, but they really set the context for what we're going to see today in verses 3 through 8. So let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1, read down to 16. For Paul, writing to the churches in Rome, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So Paul begins now to show the Roman Christians the process of renewing the mind as part of presenting themselves as a holy sacrifice to God. Foremost, the believers in the churches in Rome must stop thinking of themselves as they have been trained by Roman, Greek, or Jewish society. Instead, they must think of themselves as a person of faith ought to think of themselves. This is based on the metaphor that they are mutually supporting members of the body of Christ. Just like a human body, all the parts have different functions, but are vital to the life of the body, so too is our life in the church. So when you leave worship today, you ought to, when you evaluate yourselves and each other, uh, according, you ought to evaluate each other and yourselves according to the measure of faith that you've been given, according to the gifts given to you and expressed by you, and according to the gifts given to others and expressed by other believers. 
As I said, Paul is continuing on with that introduction he made in verses 1 and 2, that we are not to be conformed to this age or this world, but we are to be transformed, beginning with the renewal of the mind. This is our reasonable service to God to present ourselves as holy offerings to him. Now, if you will look at your text in verse 3, Paul's going to begin again, if you will. He's made these comments in verses 1 and 2, and then he says uh, at the beginning of verse 3, for the, by the grace given to me, I say, he's saying, I'm going to tell you something now. I've given you this introduction. Now I'm going to give you specifics. And this whole section from verse 3 down to verse 16 is kind of a mini unit and we know this because it's bookend. You can see here in verse 3, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And in 16, he's going to conclude this little section by saying, don't be haughty. Think of associate with the lowly. The two ideas bookend this whole section. And we're going to look at the first part where he talks about gifts that are given in the church to believers. He's going to use his authority as an apostle here. He says, for by the grace given to me, because of what Jesus has given to me, bestowed on me, the commands he's put on me to be an apostle, I'm going to say to everyone among you, so he's talking to all these people in the Roman church, or probably multiple, we know the very last chapter of Romans, there's multiple house churches in Rome, and he's talking to all these believers in Rome that are going to get this letter. He's not talking to just the authorities of the church. He's not just talking to those who are not in authority. He's giving general rules to everyone in the church. And these rules are going to be governed, we're going to see, by the rest of Scripture. So we don't rip them out of their context. We understand them in their context. But these are general rules that apply to all of us who are believers in the church. In other words, Paul is not going to pit his words that he speaks here against other things he's going to say in other letters. He's going to leave it to us to reconcile the two things that he says. So if he says something about gifts here, and then he says something else, he's expecting us to take these as the general statements and then apply the more specific things he said elsewhere. I'm going to show you an example of this that I hope will be very convincing. So Paul's talking here with apostolic authority. And he's giving us these general guidelines that we need to embrace. And Paul wants us to think rightly. Uh, recognize, again, let me go back to verses 1 and 2. He exhorted us, he encouraged us to renew the mind. Do you remember that phrasing he used to begin with the renewal or the renovation of the mind? So now he's, as he gets down into details, he's going to use this term to think four times here in verse 3. Look at it with me, if you will. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, and that Greek word under judgment there is a, is a kind of a special use of the Greek word to think. Of course, when you're judging something or evaluating something, you're thinking about it, right? So four times he uses either the word to think or a variant of that word in one sentence, and he doesn't have to use it that often. He's using it, repeating it, uh, as Brother Dale pointed out for us in Sunday school this morning. He's repeating these words to emphasize them, the importance here. If you're renewing your mind, you need to think about yourself rightly 
as you come in to the church. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, what does he mean? What does this look like? Well, in ancient Rome, significant people had a couple attributes. One, they were from the right lineage. They were descended from the right family or from the right, the correct tribe of ancient Romans. You might know, for example, who's the most famous Roman? Julius Caesar. Uh, Julius was not his first name. Julius was actually his family name. Caesar was a nickname. His first name was Gaius, Gaius Julius. And as a Julian, or he was from the family of the Julii. That's what Julius meant. The Julii were an ancient family among the Romans. The Julii believed they were descended from the goddess Venus. And they had been around since the founding of Rome. And so men like guys Julius Caesar, his nephew uh, Octavian uh, Caesar, they were important and significant mainly because of who they descended from. They had the right lineage. You might know that Julius Caesar was betrayed. He was murdered principally by a guy named Brutus Junius. He was from a family called the Junii. They were the most respected, oldest, powerful family among the Romans, the Junii. So this right lineage among the Romans was a very important way you recognize the significance of people. There were families in Rome that were no longer wealthy, or powerful, but they were given the utmost deference because they descended from these ancient uh, families or tribes that were around in the founding of, Rome's, of Rome. Another way you were significant in Rome is if you were a citizen of Rome. Not all the people who were Romans were citizens of Rome. And to be a citizen meant you participated in the government and religious life of the city of Rome, and these two things were intermixed. Have you ever heard the phrase sacred duty? You know, to, to, to go vote is your sacred duty, and we mean in English it's a really important thing you ought to do, even though you may not do it. But to them it was a holy duty, it was a religious act to go and participate in the government of Rome. And so if you were a citizen, voting was just not important for you, it was an overt act of worship in front of the populace of Rome and showed that you were an important person because you had the franchise to vote and you participated under the eye of the gods, under the eye of the city, the people of the city in voting. If you were a citizen, you were a significant person in Rome and you could hold office. And the government offices were also religious, often religious offices as well. Most of these Romans were men, except for a few exceptional widows of prominent uh, men or daughters of prominent men in these prominent households. But for the most part, they were the, in the Latin, the pater familius, the, the head of the household, the father of the household. So to be significant in Roman society, you also had to be a man with a family of women, children, and slaves. Now, the contrast to that is in Rome, women were mostly insignificant. So were children, so were slaves. So were all these people who were Romans by ethnicity, but weren't citizens. They were called plebeians. They were the low, poor classes in Rome, and they were low because they were insignificant. Women, children, 
Uh, Greeks, if you were a Greek who lived in Rome, you were considered kind of a dirty, low-down person, dirty, low-down Greek, kind of how we treat people from Oklahoma, right? If you were a barbarian and you, you, know, you came into the city with your furs and your uncouth way of living and maybe you don't bathe every day like the Romans did, maybe you'd never seen a city, you were really insignificant in Rome. That's how the Romans who become Christians come into the church view the significance in people of the, in their society. So it stands to reason in these churches in Rome, you might be looking around, who should teach us? Well, maybe it should be someone from an important family that should teach us because that's how we were taught to judge significance. Maybe it should be the guy who's also holds office, a religious office. Maybe he should teach us in the church or preach the sermon. You can see where that could go off the rails real quickly, right? Same with Greeks. The Greeks... Uh, you know, had their own culture and their own view of what was significant and what wasn't, and it differed from what the Romans viewed as significant. We also know there were Jews in these churches that had become Christians. What do we know about the Jews? Well, for example, they had no love for the Gentiles. They viewed even the most lofty Greek or Roman as a low-down, dirty, unclean Gentile forever sundered from God, unable to worship God rightly. Uh, if you were a Jew and you came into the church as a Christian, and you're seeing all these Romans and Greeks and barbarians come into the church, you might think there's no way we can let them run the church because they're Gentiles, they're unclean, and they can't ever become clean people. And we're talking about ritual purity or ritual cleanness for worship, not physical dirtiness, although many of them were also physically very dirty. Gentiles could never participate in the worship of God as a Jew could. If you wanted to, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you could take the rites, you could convert, you could go through the ceremonies, you could even become circ circumcised if you were a man, but you only ever became a God-fearer. It was only your descendants who could become Jews, real Jews, and especially if you went and married someone who was Jewish, and they could descend ethnically from the Jewish people. So you see how in these churches in Rome, there's probably a lot of confusion. Who will lead us? Who will teach? Who will take care of the widows? How do we do the things we have heard about ought to be done within the church if we have different views of who's important and who's not important in the church? Paul starts with, if you want to be sober-minded, if you want to have right judgment in who is lofty or significant in the church and who is not, you must now abandon what society has taught you. And remember, that was our theme in chapters 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this age. Put that stuff away and begin this process of being sanctified. Begin by renewing your mind. Let Scripture have its effect on you. Paul says, now down here in the details, he's going down into specific things that are to do. You've got to first, if you're going to come into the church, you cannot go around with these ideas that you learn from your culture and your society about who's in charge, who's significant, and who is lowly and insignificant. In fact, if we remember back just a few chapters to Romans 8, everyone is of some significance in the church. You remember that from Romans 8? 
829, the golden chain of redemption, how does God start? He's chosen people before he ever began to create them. You remember that? And what did he do when he chose them? He had a purpose before he made any of those purpose people, excuse me, and that purpose was to conform each one of the elect to the image of his own son. So there's no believer that comes into the church who's insignificant. There's no believer in the church who is unimportant or doesn't have some role. And he's going to back that up with this metaphor of the human body as to how the church is structured. Now, that doesn't mean every one of us can run the church or teach and preach at the same time. That would lead to confusion. So there is going to be a way we can determine who needs to fulfill certain roles in the church, both formally, but then there's all kinds of informal tasks in the life of the church that can be done. And how do you know if you should do them? Maybe you're being arrogant if you go and help somebody that you see needs help informally. Should you ask an authority? Paul's going to show us how we can figure out what we need to do. Come back to this idea with me in verse 4 and 5. I want to go over this body metaphor that I talked about. He's convinced us that we should abandon our former way of evaluating people. And then he gives us this reason, verse 4, for or because, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, through though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. He gives this example of the human body. The human body is made up of many organs, and let me assure you, every one of them is vital. If your kidneys are removed, you won't live very long. If your heart is taken out, you won't live very long. The heart helps the kidneys. The kidneys help the lungs. The lungs help the heart. You know, the skin is an organ. It has an important role. But once believed your appendix had no point or purpose. And in fact, we've discovered your appendix has a role as well. That's important to the body. Certainly, you can live without, uh, you know, a foot or an extremity, but I think you get the idea here is that all these organs don't do the same thing. We're not an undifferentiated mass. We have these different parts of us and they all have vital functions and they have to work together. So to the church, the people around you who are believers, they have a vital function in the church. You don't have to do everything that's in the church. And in fact, you if the metaphor is true, and it is, you can't do all the functions of the church yourself. By yourself, you can't be a fully functioning church. You need those people around you, and they need you, because you have gifts given to you, and they have gifts given to them. Your gifts help them, their gifts help you. We'll look at that in a little more detail. But I've, if you have been following along, I skipped over a little bit of a verse at the end of, of verse 3, a little bit, of, a few words, and I won't come back to them. Because how do we know, what is that litmus test when we evaluate others to determine their significance? If we're going to put away society's view of significance, what do we use? We'll come back to verse 3. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think with sober judgment or sober thinking, each according 
to the measure of faith that God has assigned, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then in verse 6, we see something similar. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then the first gift, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, this is something new that we haven't really seen in the Apostle Paul. We're to use this measuring of faith or grace to determine the significance of someone's gifts. But where we've used faith previously, if you think back to chapters 3 and 4, faith was either something you had or you didn't have. If you had a faith like Abraham's, then God would credit to you the righteousness you needed, the credit, the righteousness that God had that you were lacking. If you had a faith like Abraham's, he'd give you that faith. He'd put it on you. And if you didn't have that faith, well, you were outside the kingdom. There was no you know, amount of faith. And th these words are sometimes used in this idea of a dispensation of an amount of grace in salvation. Uh, amount of faith given so that you can cooperate by God. The fancy theological term is called provenient grace, a grace that helps or aids a little bit of faith to get you started and then you do the rest. But that would wholly contradict what Paul has talked about in chapters 3 and 4, of justification by faith alone. That, that None of the work is ours in salvation. I don't think Paul is trying to contradict himself here. So what do we do with this text? I think what Paul means is as we He's talking about thinking and judging and evaluating other people and ourselves. And we're to look at the amount of this grace and faith, not that saves us, but once saved, once we've come into the church, there is a dispensation of gifts to us. He's going to list what those gifts are, and they're given in different amounts. So let's think of this uh, proportion of faith or the amount of grace given to us as we evaluate each other in terms we've seen before, in terms of, for example, how much knowledge we have of Christ, how much experience we have in the Christian walk. We've talked about in the past weak faith versus strong faith. You're familiar with that? Mature Christianity or mature faith versus new faith. We recognize that people come into Christianity and they may not know very much when they get saved. And there are other people who've been Christians for 40, 50 years who know a lot of the Bible, who've experienced a lot of things. Doesn't it make sense that Paul would be saying, if we're going to evaluate people in the church, we need to look for these gifts and look how much of those gifts have been given to people in these terms. So we'd look to mature believers to be the ones to teach, preach, give mercy in preference to a new believer. Does that make sense? We wouldn't want to take a new believer off the street and put them in the pulpit and hope they get it right, right? We would want someone who knows something, someone who's experienced something. Now, that is not to say those who are new in the faith have no spiritual gifts. And it's not to say that those who are new in the faith shouldn't use their spiritual gifts. I think we will look at a really interesting example of that uh, towards the end. So that's my tease to get you to stay awake and follow me through the rest of this. So I think what Paul is saying is put away this idea of significance that you've learned from society and now evaluate each other in the church based on the gifts that are given and the proportionality, how much of those gifts are given to people at the time 
that we're doing this evaluation. In these Roman churches, it's not the guy who holds office and maybe is a, is a priest in the Roman cultus who's now become a Christian who comes in and teaches. Maybe it's someone who's a lowly slave who's been a Christian for many years. Maybe that guy should be an elder. You see where he's going with this? So let's look at these gifts. And I think that makes sense when we look at these gifts given in verses 6 through 8. So come with me, if you will, back to verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. These are like the functions, the vital organs in the body. No one will have all of these gifts, and no church can live if some of these gifts don't, aren't, aren't being used, if they're turned off. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. If you've been counting, there are seven spiritual gifts here. It's not complete. Other, elsewhere, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, there's a list of spiritual gifts given by Paul. They're a little different. So this is not a complete list. That's not a complete list. Ephesians chapter 4, you can see a list. 1 Peter, you can see Peter teaching the exact same thing. In summary, giving some spiritual gifts. But the ones here that we're going to deal with today, and I'm not going to go exhaustively into detail in them, prophecy is foretelling, telling forth the Word of God, well, the Word of God is complete in Scripture, so prophecy today is not creating new Scripture, it's preaching Scripture. Uh, in service, and, you, and you'll notice here, the first two, if prophecy of service, and then he, then he changes the form, the one who does, the one who does, did you notice that? I think he's kind of set off the first two here as gifts that go mainly with the two offices in the church, preaching and being a deacon, that word deacon means minister or servant of the church, one who serves. So he begins with prophecy and service. And of course, I don't, those are formal offices. He's talking about gifts here. These gifts can be, are given to all of the believers. Not, it's not that if you have a gift, you always necessarily use it in a formal office in the church. These gifts can be used informally as well. So prophecy, preaching, service, serving the church, teaching. Teaching is different from prophecy. When we preach, uh, every sermon should have a, a so what, an application. You ought to. We ought to. In teaching, we always don't get that explicit. In teaching, we're educating. In preaching, we are educating and then calling you to do what you've seen and learned. Although that dividing line can be blurred sometimes in our teaching in the church. Exhorting, exhortation is encouraging. We're going to look at an example of that. Uh, so you can see what that is in the church. Contributing, giving. This is giving money, contributing to the support of the church and the other believers. You can see in Acts 2. And also in chapter 4, how the early church gave and how they cared for one another. Leading, uh, when you lead in the church, you're to do it with zeal. Uh, that's as opposed to being lazy. So a zealous leader is one who leans forward into the work of leading. 
And then doing acts of mercy is very similar to the, the formal role of a deacon, but in caring for those who are sick, caring for widows, caring for orphans, to do it with cheerfulness. And why does he say cheerfulness? Well, if you've ever uh, served other people, it can begin to be a drag. It can be a beat down. We're to serve, we're to serve cheerfully. So those are the gifts that are given. And if we were to evaluate each other, the first thing we should do when we begin to evaluate others in the life of the church is to look for these gifts, look for them within us, each of us, and look for them in each other, and then see how they're distributed and how much, what measure of gift is given to each people. Now, this section is going to go on. You remember I said at 16, he ends with the same idea of no, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly. He's going to give commands for living in the next section. This is all one unit, though. And what's in the middle with these two bookends of not being, not thinking of yourself wrongly, not thinking of yourself too highly, in the middle is verse 9, which we'll get to this section next week, but I want to point it out. What undergirds your use of the gifts is this idea of letting love be genuine. And we're going to spend a lot more time on that next week, but I want that to be in your mind, that the root of using our gifts is brotherly love, love for one another, love for our neighbor. Okay. So there's two principles here that I want you to take away, and then we'll look at how these apply and that example I promise to give you, I will get around to giving you. The first principle, we individually must impart to others the gifts that each of us have received. If you're a believer, you have some of these gifts that Paul has listed, and you must give that gift to others. We must recognize those gifts within ourselves, and we must use them. That's what Paul says here at the end uh, of verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. Let us, no, sorry. Let me find it and read it. Verse 6, thank you. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's his command to us there. Let us use them. So we have to find the gifts. We have to think rightly about what is significant, which is these gifts given by the Spirit. And then we have to find them in ourselves. And then we have no choice as believers but to give them to others, to use them for the benefit of others. And the second principle is we must receive from others those gifts that have been given to them. You can't have all these gifts if you are going to be a full Christian Something is missing that you can't fill, and that is given to someone else to use for your benefit, for your advantage. So we must recognize these gifts in others, and we must let them use them. Part of that is we have to be content with the gifts that are given to us. We can't grasp for gifts that the Spirit doesn't give us. We can't be envious for them. We also can't be pushed into using them because some won't use their gifts. You have a gift that you're given, you ought to use it. But if you don't have a gift, you shouldn't be trying to use that gift. The people who have that gift should use them. Does that make sense? Others should use the gifts that have been given them for our advantage. We have to be humble enough to receive the good things God has given to us, but given to us through other people. Well, so 
what how do we actually do this listen to this insight from uncle john from john calvin the society of the godly cannot exist except when each one is content with his own measure and imparts to others the gifts which he has received and allows himself by turns to be assisted by the gifts of others if the roman christians observe these principles that Paul has given them, you can see where conflict and confusion in this, their churches will start to recede. Conflict and confusion in their churches is based on what they've brought in from society. Well, if they put that away, that conflict now is going to go away and sanctification will increase, will occur, because they'll start using their gifts for each other. There'll be unity in the church. Their ethnicity will begin to go away. It doesn't mean, you know, for example, their skin color will change or their look will change, but what they have learned from their upbringing will start to be taken out of the church, and what will be left will be the pure and unadulterated religion. Remember, Paul wants to go to Rome and use stable, strong churches there as a base to spread the gospel further west. So let's apply this to us. We have a new church plan in here, a lot of us didn't know each other two years ago. You know, some of us knew each other, but a lot of us didn't know each other. We come from different backgrounds, different, uh, you know, not, not a horribly different society, but different regions, different upbringing, different life experiences. Some of us were saved out of growing up in, in other Christian groups that have fallen away. Others were not Christians at all before they became Christians. There's a variety here of things we bring into the church and think about what is significant among us. We've got to start putting all that away to be blended into one body, mutually supporting each other, because we want to be a light to Bonham, to Fannin County. We want the evangelical work to continue of the gospel spreading out from us, right? Just like Paul wanted a stable church in Bonham, or in Rome, sorry, we want a stable church in Bonham, right? And Paul wants that too. So we must begin to look for the significance in each other. Well, how do we look at significance in our society? Do you have an Instagram account? How many followers do you have? Some of you are older may not do that anymore, or may not do that at all, haven't learned that, but you younger people, right? That's what society views as important. Looks, wealth, popularity, all those things we learn, even if we reject them on their face, we have been soaking in that culture our whole lives. So when we come in the church, we don't want to look around and say, well, who's the most popular? Let's put them in the pulpit, right? Who's the richest guy? Let's have that guy teach. Who's the best looking woman? Let's have her do, you know, X, Y, and Z. We don't want to judge that way. We don't want to say who has the most followers on Instagram and make them an elder of the church. That's a worldly way of viewing things. We want to look around and says, who has these gifts that Paul describes? Who has them in more measure because they've been a Christian longer? Who is newer to the faith? What are their gifts and how can we help them grow in those gifts? So let me give you an example. Let's get right down to brass tacks. And of course, I picked one that is enormously controversial. That's the gift of teaching. There's a, the church is being royal today by who should teach in our churches. 
If you have the gift of, gift of teaching, that's one of the ones that Paul lists here, what should you do? You should be teaching. It may be a formal role of teaching in the church. It may also be an informal role of teaching in the church. But you should express that gift of teaching if you have it. What about the measure of faith? Like we said, would we take a new believer who came in the church and we said, wow, this person really can teach. Maybe they've been a teacher for you know 30 years in the public schools and then became a believer. Maybe they're a professor at a university. Should we throw them in, the, in a Sunday school class to teach? Probably not, because they're a new believer. We should find some way to grow them into that role of teaching. Shouldn't shut them down, exclude them. We should recognize that gift, but we've got to measure the proportion of that gift given to them. So we shouldn't take new believers and make them teach. We should look at maybe more mature believers, maybe those who have had more education in teaching. What if you're not gifted in teaching? Should you take a role as a teacher? Should you be seeking that role of teaching? I don't think you should, because that's not a gift given to you. You have gifts that you ought to be using. And any time you spend teaching, if that's not your gift, is spent not, use, not using the gift you've been giving, and also takes away the opportunity from someone who's been given that gift of teaching to teach. Now, how can that happen? Sometimes we seek a role that's not suited to us. And this is where the humility of sober judgment comes in. We might want to be the most amazing encourager or exhorter that's ever existed. You know, some of us seminary boys, we all think that we're the next Charles Spurgeon when we start out, right? And at some point, some people have to be told, you're not Charles Spurgeon. You may not even have the gift of teaching. Some of you may be thinking that after my Sunday school lesson, right? But the point is, we don't grasp these gifts. We have to have an honest evaluation with ourselves and with others as to what we're gifted in. We shouldn't be trying to get roles that the Spirit has not gifted us in. But also, there's another way we can do this. Hey, we don't have a teacher and we desperately need one. Why don't we have you teach? You look like someone who could teach. That happens in churches. It happens a lot in churches. And I'm not just picking teaching. I'm, you know, all these gifts, these things go on. I'm just giving you one example. Or we'd be here till four in the afternoon if I did them all, right? Sometimes people are forced into roles and are even guilted or feel guilty because they see a need and they're pressed into that role. We don't need that either. We can trust in God. If God, through his Holy Spirit, is going to give the gifts, we can trust that God has given us the gifts that we need, or God will give bring someone along at some point with those gifts when we need them. So we don't need to push people into roles that they're not suited for either, just because we see a need. Point three, Scripture governs our gifts. So here's the really controversial part. If you're a woman, you may be gifted in teaching, and you ought to teach. Scripture is clear that you're to teach. Titus 2, women are to teach, the older women are to teach the younger women in the church. I'll leave it to you to look at Titus chapter 2 as to what they're to teach. If you have children, women are to teach their children at home the principles of the faith. Timothy, appointed by Paul, a great elder and teacher in the church, learned the faith from his mother. 
So women, you can be given the gift of teaching. But Paul also says in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2, he forbids women to teach or have authority over men in the church. Now, Paul's not in conflict with himself. He's written all three of these passages. Remember I said at the beginning, Paul's going to give us general rules. These are things he says to everyone among you in Rome to recognize and understand, but we're to use the rest of Scripture to govern them. The women are not to teach men formally in the church. Paul forbids it. And he gives reasons. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, Eve was deceived first. She mishandled Scripture. Women are not to teach formally in the church, not because women can't be good teachers. We've just looked at Paul encourages women to teach and to take roles of teaching. Women, you can have this gift. But you're not to teach formally in the church out of respect for what happened in the garden, out of recognition. The role of teaching formally in the church falls to men because it was our duty in the garden and we beefed it too. And so now it is something that we need to take. Many of our churches have been fallen into ruin because men would not use the gifts of teaching. And women, faithful women, recognized that someone needed to do it. And they took up those roles. It's hard to criticize those women seeing a need, but they shouldn't have done it. They should have waited on the Lord to provide and reform the men to teach. Many of our churches, the SBC is falling into this trap. The, pres the conservative Presbyterians are falling into this. The sp specific issue of women in the pulpit, women teaching formally in the church. But women can receive these gifts, and we all benefit by women who will recognize these gifts of teaching and use them in the proper roles under the authority of Paul the Apostle. Let me give you an example. Hold your place there, Romans, and let's turn back to Acts chapter 18. They tell you in all the preaching books to make sure you find examples that, that cover all these different points you bring up. And I think, I hope I found a good one. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Acts 18, 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So here's this Jewish man with a Greek name, named after a Greek god, in fact, coming from a city in Egypt. How fun is that? Alexandria is an enormously important city in Egypt. And he comes to this Greek city in Asia Minor, Ephesus. And look what it says about him. He was an eloquent, eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Well, that sounds pretty darn good, doesn't it? May we have a bunch of apologists. Only there's one problem. He knew only the baptism of John. So this guy is clearly has the gift of teaching and preaching. He's had proper instruction. But he also has some erroneous beliefs, a misunderstanding of Scripture. We don't have time to go into it, but the baptism of John is a different baptism than Christian baptism. It was practiced rightly at its time, but it's replaced by the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Christian baptism. Now look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, should Apollos teach since he has this erroneous belief? He should. He has the gift of teaching. He ought to be teaching. 
Let me say that again. He should be teaching because Paul has said, if you've got the gifts, you need to use them. The problem is, is his erroneous teaching needs to be corrected. And look how it's done. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple. Aquila, he's probably a Roman guy. He's got a great Roman name, the eagle. That's what the, Aquila, uh, the word Aquila means. Aquila the eagle and his wife Priscilla, they don't cancel Apollos because of his erroneous teaching of baptism. They recognize his gifts. And as a married couple, they take him aside and they teach him informally. Do you see that? And they encourage him and his gifts. That's the exhortation. Do you see how these things are working along? It doesn't say Aquila took him aside and left his wife at home. It's this married couple that take Apollos aside. And let me tell you, Apollos goes on and has a following. At some point, there's even a conflict where some people are pitting Apollos against Paul. And Paul says, hey, there's no conflict here. Apollos is a gift to the church by God in his gift of teaching. We don't need to shut people down but when they don't know things. But here, Apollos has the gifts, but he's not got the full measure of faith that he needs. Just like the example Paul is showing us here in Romans 12. So what do they do? They encourage him. They build him up. They fill in the gaps in his teaching. And then they unleash him as a teacher. And he goes on using his gifts. And who benefits? The church benefits. Aquila and Priscilla benefit hearing his teaching. Does everybody see that example? I think it's a great example. I'd love to take credit for it. The problem is that Aquila and Priscilla eventually meet Paul. They are fleeing Rome, ironically. And it may be that Paul is thinking about this exact situation as he's writing this section in, in Romans 12. So I didn't really come up with this. I just recognize it as a lot of other people have. But I think it's of enormous benefit to see that Paul is writing back to these Roman churches. And he's saying, do look at these, look for these gifts. There's kind of an implicit, look how this has been done even among people who came from you and do these kinds of things among you. Recognize the gifts that you have, recognize the gifts that others have, encourage each other to use them, use your gifts, find ways in the church for you to use your gifts, for others to use your gifts, for you to advantage others with your gifts, to be advantaged in the gifts of others. Present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. This is your reasonable worship. This is what Paul is saying to do. Start by throwing away these ideas of significance that you get from your culture and begin to do what he's described in these passages. So if you're a believer here today, you must do these things. You've heard Paul commanding you to do them. You must begin to work out of your system what you think is significant and work into yourself this idea of evaluating others based on the measure of faith given. The progress in sanctification that people have made, the recognition of the gifts given by the Spirit. You need to find your own gifts. Now, it used to be fashionable to take these spiritual gifts tests online. I don't even know if they still exist, but I'm not encouraging you to do that. The gifts are described in Scripture. Start there, seek them out in Scripture, evaluate your life, and then turn to those in the church who are more mature 
and see if they can help you to find your gifts and to develop your gifts. But you need to find them. Gifts are also not made up. They're not the things that we think are important. They're the things that Christ has revealed to us in his word. If you have a lesser measure of faith, you can begin by working with others who have a greater measure of faith in building up and discovering your gifts. You can talk to, uh, we have church planners. We have a governing church that have experienced uh, ministers and believers. They can also help us to discover the gifts. They can advise us on how people can fit different formal roles and informal roles in our church. Avoid pushing yourself into roles that are above your station in the society of the church. Now, when I say your station, I don't mean as the world decides people are lofty or low. Avoid being pushed into roles that don't match up with your gifts. If you're an unbeliever here, I said last week you're a slave to what you've learned from society. And that's still true if you're an unbeliever today. Unbelievers will come into the church, but they'll judge by the culture standard. You'll find them out because they'll be looking around and saying, well, who's wealthy? That lady ought to lead us. Who's handsome? That guy ought to lead us. Who has power? That person ought to use their power in the church. We need to watch for those things and guard against them because unbelievers will promote those things and we know they will come into the church and we know that they're unable to do the principles that Paul has laid out here. If you're an unbeliever, you cannot do these things Paul is telling you to do. It will go off the rails. It'll turn into a mess. You can only do them by the power of the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit has begun to work in you. If you see these things and you say, yeah, I want to do these things, but you're not a believer in Christ, now's the time, that's the prompting to receive Christ, profess your faith in him, receive baptism, receive the forgiveness of sins, receive the Holy Spirit. We can only do what we're seeing today. I mean, think about it. You can only get these gifts of the Spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can only use them because the Holy Spirit is active in you. So we must now, as I conclude here, work on the process of renewing the mind. You need to begin renewing your mind. You need to present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. You can begin today. Stop thinking of yourselves as society has taught you to think. Think of yourselves according to the proportion of faith you've been given. Look for how you can be a vital organ to the rest of this body, how you can fulfill your function. Look how the other vital organs, that's every one of you that's a believer, can help you in your sanctification, in your growth. Every believer in this room is vital to me, to my family, to every other believer in this church. We've got to find ways to do more to help each other. And I'm not saying what we've done in the past is bad. We want the, be the benefit of each other. So we want to, with zeal, look for ways to pour into each other. So when you leave worship today, begin this process of evaluating yourselves and others according to the gifts given to you, 
the gifts you've expressed in the past, the gifts you've seen others get, express, and how you've benefited others. Let me leave you with this quote from John Calvin, because I think it's so good. Again, the society of the godly cannot exist except when each one is content with his own measure and imparts to others the gifts which he has received and allows himself or herself by turns to be assisted by the gifts of others. How will you begin to give your gift of the Spirit to others in the church? How will you begin to receive the gifts of others? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is like a flaming fire in its power. We're tempted to shrink back from it. We know that it is a fire that just consumes our sin. It consumes the ungodly and evil works, and it leaves behind the pure fruit of faith. Lord, build that pure fruit of faith within us. Lord, do this work among us. Build us up in unity. Reveal our gifts to ourselves and to one another. Humble us to receive the gifts of others. Do not let us stray and push people into roles uh, or practices that they shouldn't have. And do not let us be haughty, seizing gifts from one another, storing up uh, a measure of our own usefulness and denying it to others but lord let us with genuine love mutually benefit one another reveal these things to us and give us the power as your word works on us as your word renews our mind give us the ability to do these things that you have commanded for the apostle paul and lord i pray that christ would be exalted in all that we do that his name would be the name above every name, that we would be a useful tool for the kingdom, and that you would spread your gospel to those who are perishing around us. Lord, we pray, bring those who are hungry and thirsty for the word, hungry and thirsty for Christ. Bring them to us and let us fill up their needs in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.